Um, so I like to do this little exercise as a starter. And this is um, John Wesley's uh, directions for singing, which were, um, which were published in one of the early Methodist hymnals. And, and uh, John Wesley's one of the, one of the, the English um, leaders who kind of um, really had a lot of influence on the move towards more congregational um, singing and the development of kind of the modern, our, our perspective on what a, a hymn um, is. So, but he, he had very um, specific ideas of what it meant to participate in the singing of those in the Methodist gatherings. So this is kind of fun. And, and I think there's some, some poignant stuff in there as well. So we'll pass these around and we have plenty, but here we go that way. There's gonna be a bunch extra at the end. Um, why don't we do this? So what I'd love to do is read through them all and then, then we'll just kind of reflect for a minute on, on what we see in here. Um, so why don't we go through and Ellison, you read the first one and we'll just kind of go around until we hit seven people. Learn these tunes before you learn any others. Afterwards, learn as many as you please. <laughs> Sing them exactly as they are printed here, without alteration or mending them at all. <laughs> and if you have learned to sing them otherwise, unlearn it as soon as you can. <laughs> Sing all. See that you join with the congregation as efficiently as you can. Let not a slight degree of weakness or weariness hinder you. If it is a thought to you, take it up. <laughs> <laughs> Amen. Great. Um, is that new to some of you, at least? Those really fun. Uh, there's a there's actually an album by a woman named Maddie Pryor, who's like a um, what is she Irish English folk singer. Um, called the title is "Sing Lustily and with Good Courage." I think the word "lustily" had slightly different. Um, 
or, or more broad connotations than, than uh, currently, but it's such an awesome phrase. I heard you, I heard you notice, Allison, like how do you sing lustily, but also modestly? <laughs> like, it's a nice, good, there's like a very specific. Um, I also, I also um, just wanna make my first comment as someone who's led worship for a long time. I think once drum sets entered the world of, of corporate worship, I think the challenge moved from we sing too slow to often we sing too fast. Um, but it's kind of interesting to think that was probably a, a reality for a lot of acapella, you know, congregational singing. Okay, what I'd love to just ask you is just let's make observations for a few minutes. What are, um, what are some values you see Wesley kind of, can you name values um, that you see him drawing out here? And can you name any values that you think apply to what you've experienced at Resurrection or within our, our diocese or our movement? Harmony. Say again? Harmony. Mm. That's good. good yeah and song not as a feel-good exercise but as a practice service and worship yeah good and the priority of the repertoire too interesting the priority of the, the repertoire that yeah we yeah yes yeah i um that was huge for wesley and he was developing a community and a culture mm -hmm. and uh and, and, and music and having everyone sort of committed to the same thing, you know, helped develop that. Seems like a concept of a form God. Do you sell it? Your heart be fully devoted by the song? Mm. Mm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's a straightforwardness. Yeah, this was at this was at a time too when, um, uh, you know, kind of <coughs> excuse me, fancying up music and lots of well, vocalese kind of movements and, and things like that would be really popular. So he's definitely also trying to kind of simplify. I think if I'm right, John Wesley did not have an incredibly high opinion of Handel's Messiah because he found it really kind of. Um, Ornate, yeah, so pretentious, yeah. <laughs> uh, any other, any other observations? I think there's also like an earnestness to it, and he wants mm -hmm. to be really getting to it. Yeah, you know? yeah. I like. Um, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Um, but not a slight degree of weakness or weariness to move you and seeing like that as being a sacrifice that we take mm. in worship. That's good. Yeah, these are still printed in most Methodist hymnals. Do they use the exact same verbiage? Yeah. I sure hope so, because it's so good. <laughs> what is this? Yeah. <laughs> It's so, it's so fun. Yeah, I want uh, it's, it's kind of a fun way to kind of jump into the idea of th talking about, talking about uh, worship and musical worship from a sort of um, values standpoint. 
uh, which is what we're going to do today. Um, what I really want to do is I want to just share some basic ideas or principles with you guys, and then I'd really love to have discussion time. Um, feel free to ask for clarification or questions as we go here. But also, at, if, we, if we're going and you think, um, oh man, I really want to ask Steve while he's in the room when we're talking about this, about X, or it sparks something, write it down, because I would love to have just some conversational time with you guys, just about worship at large, um, because today I'm really going to talk about music, but I'd love for you to ask questions about even any other areas of the arts or, or just worship in general. So it, if it's like, hey, now we're all in the room together, I've been dying to ask this question or it comes to mind, please do so. Um, more specifically, I'm actually going to talk about Sunday musical worship. So you can also feel free as at the end to ask questions about our the other services and forms of musical worship that we have at Resurrection. But I want to talk about Sunday musical worship because this is what people first experience at Resurrection. Um, this is what people often experience at Resurrection. I think it has a major way in which it defines and, and centers, and it's the core of our life together, our musical worship. Um, but there is so much more, and I think it's important to note that. So I'm going to kind of go specifically into one very specific area of worship, and not only that, one specific area of musical worship. But I want you to feel free to kind of ask um, questions around the surrounding. And if this, then what, how does that apply to over here? Um, and even more specific than just Sunday morning worship, I'm going to be talking about, I'm, I think I'm really talking about how I think about selecting and leading music in the context of our Sunday morning worship. So I'm going to try to kind of really hone in on that, um, but ask questions around it. So I also think this is important because if you're ever going to plant or lead worship in our movement or work with a worship leader in our movement, um, this is a huge part of who we are. This is a huge defining part of who we are. And um, uh, a, couple, a couple summers ago, my, my kids said to me, you know, we get, I probably get two or three Sundays away in, in the summertime. Um, and I, I love going to churches outside of our movement on those Sundays because it just reminds me of what else is out there. And I'm a church music nerd. And of course, I want to see what other people are doing. And my kids said to me like two or three sum summers ago, so when we don't go to res, could we just go to other churches in our diocese? Because for them, you know, that church is so defined by that kind of value of and, and, and form of worship that they've experienced here. And I both, I both love that they asked that and said, sometimes yes and sometimes no, because I actually want you to experience other things. Like we went to a, we have friends in Nashville who go to a Church of Christ church. And they've grown up Church of Christ and it was the old school Church of Christ where there's no musical instruments and it's just four or eight people on a stage that lead the whole service a cappella. And I was like, you guys have to experience this stuff and know what's out there. But, um, but for us, it's a huge defining part of our culture. Other, other movements, other forms of uh, parts of the church, I don't know that the musical Sunday worship you'd put right necessarily at the, one of the top defining features of, 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 of what kind of defines them. But for us, it certainly is way up uh, the list. So, okay, um, a little bit of background, and then I'm going to jump into uh, the kind of two main contextual points I want to give for you guys today with lots of sort of sub points there. First of all, I think it's important 
what I'm bringing to you, it's probably important to kind of know a little bit about kind of my background and Rez's musical ministry background, sort of how we got here. As Rez, um, we're all, I didn't know if I was going to be in a room with all kind of Rez natives or if there'd be some diocesan folks as well. Most of the churches, certainly a lot of the ones that have some direct connection to resurrection, share this very specific history. Um, first of all, I guess it's just fair to say that I'm coming from a, a res um, history perspective with this. Um, second of all, just that my background in my study development was vocal, choral, musical study. Um, so I've I've always come even to approaching thinking about congregational worship and even band-led worship, highly influenced by what I received from a choral music background. Um, and I might point that out as I talk, but it's also just something to, to bear in mind that I'm coming from that context. And not everyone does when they think about musical worship. I also, I spent 13 years here at Res, basically as the primary Sunday morning worship leader doing, you know, um, 70 to 95% of Sunday morning worship leading for, for 13 years. And that defined our culture for a long time, but we're also at an interesting shifting moment at Res because for the last two years, I've started sharing responsibility significantly. I don't even lead a half of the time. I don't, right now, I, I lead at best a quarter of the Sundays. And it's an interesting time to be talking about uh, our values because here at Res, I mean, that's a major shift. We now have a, a kind of team shared system of leadership. And there's certain challenges that are, arise in that, which is why I started talking about it more with our worship leaders. First of all, just consistency of vision, which I think fortunately for us, I think that's very much shared with our leaders. Um, also just consistency of music. Even if you have the same vision, if I go here and I send you two states away and we're like, we have the same vision, you're going to make different musical choices than me, right? So how I, we're even thinking, what does it mean for like a team leadership dynamic at Res right now? Um, also, consistency of just basic things like instruction, rehearsal practices, and leadership style. So if someone's a member on your team, one week Steve leads them, one week Alec leads them, one week Jeannie leads them. I mean, the rehearsals probably feel different. That has a that is an interesting, and then, and then congregation, it's like, what is it like to be led by Alec or Jeannie or Steve or John? Um, so it's just an interesting, I just point that out to say it's an interesting moment to be talking about, about our values and for you to even be thinking, how do I see that applied? How do I see the effort to apply that? That's kind of an interesting dynamic now that there's multiple leaders. I just put that out there as sort of context for where we're living right now um, in the musical worship life of Rez. Um, so my aspects of what we do also, and what I'll probably say, are also probably specifically for the cathedral, and I do think there's a specific calling and a specific charism on the cathedral that's not necessarily um, uh, applied more broadly to all our church plants. Um, but then there's other things, I think, that I'll say that apply more broadly. Um, so if you're thinking about planting a church or other churches in our diocese that are different sizes, different locations. Um, I think some of it, some of this probably, um, and the way I approach worship here at Res, doesn't apply as directly. So, I mean, be discerning about that. Ask a question, even if you're like, hey, is what you're saying here, how does that apply to 
a new church plant versus a very large church that's the cathedral that's four blocks from Wheaton College, right? Really different context. How does it apply to a church plant in a completely different sort of socioeconomic, ethnic background? I mean, those are really good questions to be asking. So I'm gonna try in some ways just to give you what I got in terms of what we do here and how we think about it here. And I'd love to talk if you have questions about contextualization, I think that'd be really fun. Um, I'm not trying to kind of jump over those, if you will. Um, other things that affect our musical approach, first of all, just our Anglican heritage. Um, and I'm gonna speak about that more specifically, but just to say, we come from a background and a tradition and we have a history. We have a 50 plus year history of our church that stretches back into the Episcopal Church. And that has a history that stretches back through the Episcopal Church that that church plant came out of. And that has a history that stretches back to uh, the Church of Scotland, the Church of England. Um, so put all that together, I mean, every step of that journey had musical um, worship values that were cultural, that in some way probably resound still all the way to today. And it's just always important to remember that we have a history and that, uh, that affects how we do things too and just keeping that in mind. I don't know that a new non-denom church plant, I'd start with, let's talk about psalm chanting. I don't think that'd be the first step. And they have, they'd have almost zero history at that point to even, like, wait, what are you talking about? You know. Um, so our history affects us too, our Anglican history. We also have a worship heritage, and I'm just going to give you a really brief rundown. First of all, we started as an Episcopal church plant, and we, um, we started in, in a very different style of worship um, that I don't even know a ton about, but it would have been more traditional when we were planted by far, and it would have been small and organ and... Um, hymns and um, whatever the Episcopal hymnal was, the 1940 hymnal, you know, because it was planted um, before the 1982, obviously. Um, and then there was uh, sort of a revival movement, and a lot of that came through John Fawcett, my predecessor, um, and um, a huge influence of kind of uh, the revival music that was going on in the 80s and 90s had a major impact. And John brought a lot of things. John brought a very broad, wide-ranging selection of music. Um, and as part of his gift, a guy who loved opera to contemporary music and gospel and Anglo-Catholic hymnody and gospel uh, Christian um, music and all other kinds of varieties of music. And so John brought that kind of breadth did something fall? The actual mic fell? Oh, I just have the clippy. I felt something happen. Um, just a couple other things. That whole term, three streams, which I have some ambivalence around, but is a, it is a term that's out there, that kind of the idea of bringing together the Anglo-Catholic tradition, the um, evangelical uh, Protestant tradition, and the sort of um, charismatic Holy Spirit tradition that kind of really started to happen under John Fawcett's leadership. Um, Ancient Future, Bob Weber, stuff like that. John was a friend of Bob Weber. John is that was actually on Bob Weber's like how-to video. John is the worship leader. Um, so I mean that's part of our 
tradition, and then just the whole movement of healing and, and revival that was under John's leadership. He was there in the Leanne Payne, uh, Redeem Lives, PCM, um, William Beasley, into Stuart Ruck era. So a lot of our heritage comes from John. Um, and then I, I was sort of mentored and brought up by John. So I, I would say a huge chunk of how I think about and lead worship still just comes from how I learned to imitate John. Um, I, I would say if I had to kind of capitalize just on like tactile things that I, I brought into the res world, adding on to John, I brought choral music to res. Um, that's how I actually started. I was like, hey, John, there's a bunch of people in the congregation when I'm out there, and they sing really well. Could I ever start a choir? And he's like, go for it. Um, so I started choir before I ever even sang on, on music team with John. Um, so, and then started over the years kind of incorporating choir into the kind of worshiping life of resurrection. And then with that, probably just a strong vocal emphasis is the other thing that I kind of, John always had, but I probably added. Part of that was I don't usually lead from an instrument. Just choral director mentality, even to how I even think of that. And then the other thing that I think is, has really affected us in the years since I led, and not, not necessarily by my impetus, definitely much more by Bishop Stewart and just the cultural change and shift that we've had here is we've become a much more inviting church in the years that I've been on staff here, um, inviting everyone into a transforming relationship. Um, evangelism, reaching those far from God, um, just the growth we've seen in the invitational spirit, that has affected us in our musical worship. Um, it's probably less insider in terms of... Um, how we do musical worship than it used to be. Some of the amount of music and the repetition and how we think about it has definitely shifted with that shift as well. So that's all my context. I have two core kind of elements I want to talk with you guys about today. Um, and like I said, it's very specifically about Sunday morning musical worship and really the thinking about selecting and leading it. Um, Okay, so here's my first one. Point, main point number one uh, is that we have a heritage. I want to talk about our heritage of Anglicanism and the great tradition. Um, that's a huge starting point for how we, how we think about our musical worship. And here's kind of my thesis statement on that one. Our musical worship is primarily an opportunity to respond to what we receive from scripture and the liturgy of the church. I'll say that again. Our musical worship is primarily an opportunity to respond, and that's the big word, respond, to what we receive from scripture and the liturgy of the church. That's my thesis statement about how I approach musical worship on Sundays. Um, and this significantly, if you're familiar with other backgrounds of worship, this significantly changes the worship leader's job and mindset in preparing for Sunday morning worship. Um, okay, so so some sub points I'll go into on that one. That's our big number one. So my A, my A under that heritage of Anglicanism and that thesis is um, our musical worship comes under the church. We as worshipers and worship leaders come under the authority of the church, both the church historic and the church now. Um, 
and a few thoughts on what that means. First of all, I think that this coming under the church as worship leaders and within our movement and within the great tradition church, I think this has a massive effect on unifying us in our worship. Because first of all, just um, practically speaking, liturgically speaking, we're doing the same thing in our worship as churches all around the globe, all around the nation, uh, all around our movement. Uh, when I, I, I'm often working in our context with liturgy on, oh man, there's a whole bunch of stuff today um, extra in the service. Like this Sunday, there's baptism, and we have a special commissioning of Morse Tan as he goes to D.C. And the question is, what do I cut? Um, because we have 90 minutes, roughly speaking, <laughs> sometimes very roughly speaking, to get it to get our service in. So how do I make that work? And there's this value that's there that's always the question of what, what are the parts of the liturgy that the whole great tradition church does and always does? And it's one of the main, and Canon Stephen has really taught me this, because, because there's a unifying factor in doing, doing the same thing as much as is possible um, with the, the, the church at large. Um, so I think there's a real unifying factor as we come under the church. Um, it unifies us in other ways besides liturgy as well. We could, we could keep going into it, but there's plenty of content. We can, you can ask more questions. Um, also, we're coming under the church in that the church has made decisions for us um, in terms of what we read when, what we do when in different seasons. So we're actually submitting ourselves to the wisdom and knowledge of the historical church, um, and that affects our musical selection as well. Uh, the church also, we learn as we come under the church that the church likes rhythm and repetition. Uh, the, church, the, the church wants us to uh, fall into a pattern that we then repeat and we do again. And we have cycles of our year. We have cycles um, within a season. We have rhythm that is all year round, things that we do every Sunday all year. We have rhythm of what we do every year. The church likes rhythm and repetition. The church also asks us to look at the whole. So um, the church wants us to look at the fullness of scripture. The church wants us to look at the fullness of the life of Christ. The church wants us to look at the fullness of what it means to be the church. The church wants us to look at all the major themes and um and storylines of scripture and lessons that we have in Christ. Um, and that takes us often to places we might not choose to go, but the church is telling us that we need to go. Um, so um, liturgical seasons have that effect. Seasons that are more um, reflective, repentant. Seasons that are more celebratory. And in our seasons of life, we might not always want to be celebratory. We might not always want to be in a place of, of, of lowness and stillness and repentance. But the church asks us to go there. Um, and also just the hard passages of scripture that we might not want to dig into. But the church says, it's in there. It's time. It's coming around. Um, so we come under the church. Okay, another thing that happens when we come under the church is that the celebrant, this is a, a primary principle of being a musical worship leader in, in our tradition. The celebrant is the worship leader. And this is something I always teach my, my musical worship leaders. 
The worship leader of the service is the celebrant. And the worship leader is always under his authority at any moment in the service. Um, have you ever noticed, some of you probably have, getting towards the end of, of, of um, communion distribution, and it's like that second to last song in worship, and it's getting kind of late in the service, and we finish the song, and the worship leader looks over, and the celebrant either goes, or... Mm-hmm. Now, there's practical realities, like what time is it? Um, but the celebrant is also deciding. I just had this on Sunday at the 8.30 because it was time to end. And the question going to my mind was, I'll go long if I feel like there's something necessary spiritually and worship-wise that this final song accomplishes. Mm-hmm. But sometimes you're like, no, I actually think we're there. But you see in that moment in a very sort of practical way that the, the musical worship leader is deferring to the celebrant who is mm-hmm. the worship leader. I even call our team here at Res the music team because they are obviously involved in worship, but I'm, I also think, so is the celebrant, the deacon, the priest, the preacher, the altar guild, the prayer ministers, the Eucharist team, the sound tech team, I mean, on and on and on. They're all the worship team, the greeters. So um, I, I made an intentional choice that I would call it the music team for that purpose, even though in some ways, it's just so natural. We still, if you slip and say worship team, so do I still. It's fine. It's kind of like normal church parlance, but that's an intentional uh, choice. Um, okay, my next point under our heritage of Anglicanism is our musical worship. It doesn't just come under the church, it also comes under the liturgy. Um, so, um, this really goes into my thesis of response. Liturgy is the structure of the service. Liturgy provides the, the movement and the structure. And music is intended to be an opportunity to respond to that. Okay, this is a big difference from other traditions and styles of worship. Uh, I'm connected to tons of Chicago area worship leaders. I'm a part of like a, a group of Chicago area worship leaders that gets together a few times a year. Uh, some of them, their entire job is prepping and planning and building the structure for each and every Sunday. Um, They basically build liturgies from scratch on a regular basis. And often, a huge part of their liturgy structure is actually music itself. The music creates the movement from here to there to there. Um, That, by and large, is not, not how our liturgy works. Um, Our liturgy is primarily prayers, declarations, um, you know, um, et cetera, that are, that are given to us by the church. The structure is there. And then when I look at music, I think um, every musical choice is how are we responding to where we are in the flow of the service right now. Um, I was talking about this once with a worship leader from an evangelical free background, which was actually what I grew up in. Um, and he defined it as, uh, he called it freedom, he called it freedom within the fence. That was his analogy. So like, he said, it seems to me like what you're saying is, you're, you, you've got this fence that's kind of built for you already, mm-hmm. that you're going to live within. But that, now that, since that, that fence is built, you, it sounds like you have a ton of freedom to run around with, within that fence. And I sort of, I don't know yet, after all these years, if I like or don't like that, because 
But it's actually helpful. I almost think of that phraseology as helpful from an outsider's perspective um, of, of what we're doing. Because um, I think it's m more beautiful and nuanced and complicated and interesting, and it's more than that. But it's also true to a certain extent. Um, some people would say that what we work in as musical uh, worship leaders is less creative, meaning, wow, so you're kind of stuck, aren't you? You've got to pick a song right here, and then you've got to pick an offertory, and you've got to pick a communion step, and you do that every week. That sounds kind of boring to me. I love that every week I'm like looking up new prayers and, and then songs, and I'm going to do this here and there. And I mean, there's fairness to the argument that one person, one worshiper, one worship leader might like one more than the other. Um, my first response is, once again, I'm still just talking about Sunday morning worship. And after 14 plus years here, um, I've probably gotten to participate in designing 15 to 20 at least different forms of worship services where music interacts in a different uh, way. Uh, but for us, our, the heart of what we do is Sunday morning. And in some ways, I would argue, one of the reasons I've gotten to be a part of doing all other kinds of services, like a Lessons and Carols, or a Wednesday Night Taze, or a Res Fast, or a Monday Thursday, or you know, um, uh, a vigil all night, or other forms of prayer vigils, or et cetera, et cetera, is that I actually have always had this freedom, especially in my worship, past, worship pastor days, that what I had to do on Sunday was was set and structured for us and we knew that and that was that was our core and so then there was energy for all these other things um and I, frankly i just find it um a thousand times easier to live in something that the church has said hey this is tried and tested and it really works um and i find it incredibly rewarding to go back to that and to come into sunday knowing that even if i made like one dud musical selection what we're living within on this Sunday is is tried and true um, over the over the centuries. Um, so some of the benefits I see um, that responsive mode it can can really give you as you select musical worship, it can give you the opportunity to think about how the heart responds um, in your musical selection. When I'm not primarily thinking about how to build structure and making sure all our theology and all our beliefs are fully um, built into my song selection, my song selection number goes way up. I was one of those college kids that really struggled with showing up at Wheaton College Chapel. And chapel is, I don't even know if it's like this anymore, but sometimes you'd show up and there'd be like a three song set at the beginning. And sometimes in my day, those songs each had about like 11 words in them. And, and it was, you know, and some of them didn't even say the word Lord or God. And, and, and I'd, have, I'd have sort of a catch of like, you haven't really brought me into this yet. What, we could be talking about anybody right now, you know, and um, we're not really capturing the fullness of the Lord. And, and so I didn't like those songs back. And then I came to Res, and I, and I sang those same exact songs in the liturgy um, within a structure that was given to me and I was like oh now my heart just wants to sing 
because I know exactly what I'm doing and who I'm singing to. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I even I feel like this, the, the structure of the liturgy as the form then gives our music the opportunity to be simple in its response mm-hmm. to. Not every song has to capture everything. Um, so it's an, it allows for simplicity. It also, I believe, allows for style variance. Um, liturgy is the cohesion. So now, well, what musical selection would, would work here to express in response what we want to say? Um, I think sometimes, and in different forms, like when I have a Taizé service that I lead, I want the style to be really cohesive, right? Because I'm trying to take you on a, a musical prayer and worship journey. Sunday morning worship, I do think there's a freedom. I'm not saying every style and every song works, but style variance works. Um, this, is a, this is a point um, of, of, would be an interesting question for cathedral versus um, church plant. I think there's some great stuff to ask there. Um, I still think style variance works, um, but um, I think one of the things under style variance is also do style that you can do well. So that, that might be where, where the church plant application comes. It applies at res. I do think there's some styles. Every season, it's, we used to have um, Aaron, what was his last name, the awesome gospel guy. Um, um, yeah, I so we were cranking out the gospel in those days because it was like, take it, Aaron. You know, Even when Bonnie was here, Bonnie had more of a, a gospel gift. So mm-hmm. like utilizing the gifts and what you can do well. But style variance as a principle, I think, works really well within the structure of the liturgy. Um, I also think that liturgy creates an aural tradition of worship. Um, liturgy itself seeps into us. And you notice people who have been around at resurrection a while who know the, the, the liturgy by heart and put their bulletins down. Um, of course it seeps into to us as adults, but Anyone who's watched children or has children who participate in the liturgy, I mean, it is so fully ingrained in my kids. I like watch them play at home um, when they're young, and all of a sudden these liturgical phrases are, are a part of their play. Um, have you ever noticed how liturgy um, impacts people with special needs? Um, that the way it's just in their system, it actually is like a p- different part of your brain repetition. Um, the 1979 prayer book actually offers different prayers of thanksgiving, different confessional prayers, and, and they're all pretty strong. Uh, we've made an intentional choice around here to not vary certain aspects of the liturgy, especially congregational aspects of the liturgy, very much because of that reality of the oral um, and memory tradition that it forms. So we don't we used to change our confessions. We, we pray the same confession all year because the nine-year-old kid in the pew doesn't even have to look mm-hmm. at their bulletin um, or the person with special needs. I, I remember just thinking about that once, like, wow, look at how it's impacted my children. And then I'm like, wait, look how it's impacted me. You know, it's just that second nature part of it, I think, is really rich as well. Okay, a caution about the liturgical tradition. It must be alive the part of our the part and it must be living and breathing the part of our our um our um diocesan mission statement infused by the holy spirit 
After I celebrated liturgy my first Sunday as a priest, Bishop Stewart came up to me and he said, great job, now spend the rest of your life praying it. Mm-hmm. And, and, and the whole point was, you, you don't just get good at saying it, mm-hmm. you know, don't just get a, like, efficient at doing it. <coughs> Live and breathe it and pray it each and every week. Um, of course, that's, um, that's a challenge for any tradition. But of course, it's the critique laid on any liturgical tradition that if we're not sort of creatively building it every week, if we're not thinking of it, about it, our, it, become, it can become very rote. Um, so um, how we prepare for worship in terms of prayer as worship leaders is hugely important. Um, I, as a musical worship leader, found that once I show up on a Sunday morning with the way we do rehearsals and all that, it's kind of go mode. I'm in leader, um, I'm managing people, I'm managing a rehearsal, etc. So I made the decision early that I would always get up very early on Sundays mm-hmm. and, and pray and, and do my devotional reading and just be awake and alert and mm-hmm. present to the Lord before I showed up at Res on Sunday. Because as soon as I do, um, it's go time. And um, I want to be prayerful with my team, but we also have a job to do. Um, But part of that don't let it be rote thing is, at this point in my career, I could show up having woken up 20 minutes ago and lead a rehearsal and go. But part of my mission to to lead the people in something that is not rote is to be prayerfully ready when I show up. So that's that's a big caution. Um, And just like any tradition, the heart of the leader the celebrant in our tradition, the heart of the musical worship leaders, and the heart of the people really matters. Mm-hmm. So we have to come into it with open hearts. And that's a challenge as a leader. You gotta give to your team, you gotta give to the people of God. Um, and fortunately for you, I think you'll always be receiving from your celebrant, your leader, um, but it's a challenge to all of us to, to always be in that, in that place. Okay. Um, then just a word quick on what is the structure that we fall under? What do I mean we fall under the structure of the liturgy? Well, this is a whole separate teaching, but I just want to give you the sort of one-minute version. Um, the most basic form that we talk about is the name of a podcast that's in our tradition, which is? Yeah, that's the basic structure we're under, the liturgy of the word and the liturgy of the table. There's a whole movement... Um, that um, defined it a little more broadly as a fourfold movement, which I would say is just kind of like a division of the twofold, which was basically gather, word, table, send. So that gather and send was basically, um, and it's very true, there's a gathering and there's a sending. I, I like word and table, but I do think when you think as a worship leader, there is certainly a gathering element at the beginning and a sending element to the end. That is the basic structure we're living under in its simplest form. Um, And what it means is that different music works in different places. So one example is the processional hymn itself is the the primary gathering musical moment of the service. So um, there are certain types of hymns that work there that don't work um, in the beginning of communion distribution and vice versa. Now some have carry over. I think I've used guide me, O thou great Jehovah, in both spots. 
but Christmas Eve, that processional hymn, will probably always be for me, angels from the realms of glory, come and worship, come and worship, worship Christ the newborn king. Mm -hmm. I mean, just, just look at the hymns, look at the music, and think about how they're fitting into where they are in the service, and think about how they're serving under the liturgy uh, the next time. We could do a whole separate talking, maybe Canon Stephen has done some of it, just on the liturgical structure of the service would be. Um, also, it's fully connected to the liturgy of the word and the table, meaning a couple things. I, I'm not, I don't think I'm contradicting myself here. Simple words are great, but always words that are worth singing, right? Um, so do you, what do you want the people of God singing together? Um, our primary focus is God-centered worship. So people usually call that vertical. Um, we are often talking about who the Lord is and what he has done, and I would say that's a high, high, high percentage of what we do. I don't fall into the camp. There are some camps, and I don't think this is our movement, and I think you know this, that fall strictly under that, that gathered corporate worship is like almost 100% um, focused on the Lord, who he is, what he has done. Mm -hmm. We also do have a very transformation um, um, healing of the human person value within our movement. And that means sometimes reflecting on um, who we are and um, what we need from the Lord. And I think if we read the Psalms like ever, we see that that's a significant part of what's going on in the Psalms as well. Um, I have to move faster. It's too fun to talk about. Isn't it, right? Uh, um, um, there's also no perfunctory or utilitarian, utilitarian singing of music. Um, uh, we, when it lives under the liturgy, it's always responding to something that's happening right now. So we're, mm. we're trying to provide a moment to respond to something specifically. Mm. It's not the, okay guys, this morning we're gonna do the six songs and then the pastor's gonna bring a word and then we'll sing one song of response. And it, it, and I'm not saying that's always perfunctory utilitarian because I've led worship services like that. Um, but it's always living in with a, a responsive mode. Okay, last question, last kind of point under this first heritage of Anglicanism and the great traditions. What, I just posed this question, I'm gonna answer it right away. What is the purpose or intent of the Sunday Eucharistic the primary point of every Sunday is that Sunday is Resurrection Sunday. Every Sunday is a mini Easter. It's the celebration of the resurrection. So Easter, Easter Sunday morning is the great Sunday, the Eucharistic um, sort of centerpiece, Resurrection Sunday. But every su other Sunday is a mini Easter. This has a massive impact on on how the musical worship leader thinks about Sunday morning worship. Um, and I have had so many conversations over the years with friends from the evangelical background who come and say, that is a communion service that's so celebratory. I rarely, if ever, been in a celebratory Eucharist um, or communion. They wouldn't use the word Eucharist. Um, so the table is a table of thanksgiving. There is an inherent joy in our Sunday morning worship. Mm -hmm. And part of that is there, it always leads 
our communion distribution sets, you've probably noticed this over the years, always lead towards celebration and thanksgiving. The, 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 the basic picture we draw of the communion set that we build is this. Now, once you kind of learn that and build that into the heart of your people, there are certainly variances to it. And I love, one of my favorite variances is this one. Like a little at the end, just like a stop. And, and some of that's musical. Some of that can be like energy, energy, tempo, tempo, and then just stop, voices, sing. And that's not necessarily stopping the Thanksgiving joy arc. But like um, Palm Sunday. Palm Sunday has this, but we're going into the whole Holy Week trajectory. And over the years, we've kind of developed this pattern of Trisagion. And it just has this kind of like, now that we have worshiped and celebrated who the Lord is and what he has done, you know, there can be this moment for something different. But that is our arc. And, and just to remember that every Sunday, um, with it being resurrection celebration, that is, that is the pattern. It's not an arc. It's a ascension, an ascent. Uh, that's, don't arcs go like this? Yeah, yeah okay. Um, um, there are, and just a reminder, there are other forms of worship um, outside of Sunday morning Eucharistic worship. But I also think Resurrection Sunday really is at the heart of what forms us as a people, forms our worship life together more than anything else. I actually get really excited about the other forms of worship. Um, but I think it's really important to understand that core. Okay, that was part one. Do you guys want me to do part two and then kind of do conversation all together at the end? Okay. Okay, I'll, I'll try to go faster in part two. Go ahead. Um, yeah, I'm being, I'm being like a little harsh about um, the form of musical worship where um, you kind of standardize the idea of we always sing six songs together um, here in the service. And um, there are forms of, uh, there are, I think, other forms of, and traditions of, of worship that create, a, um, create their own liturgy with a lot of thoughtfulness and intention and structure and movement. I also think there are other forms that um, don't and um, just say, I think when we get together, we're supposed to sing, so let's do six songs. What are those songs supposed to accomplish? What are the purpose of those six songs right now? Um, I'm not exactly sure. Uh, I think living in a responsive mode, um, I, I, my, I guess my argument is you can basically, you don't really get there because you're always responsive. Um, if you will. So you're always, you're always part of a structure that you're then responding to. I have nothing against a six-song set. I actually love them. Um, I think you have to be thinking about what, what, what's happening in that set and where we're going in that moment. Because then if you're not, it can be kind of perfunctory. We always sing here. So perfunctory is probably even a better word. I just wanted two words because I like two words. <laughs> they kind of the same thing. Um, okay. Um, Here's number two. So number one was our heritage of Anglicanism and the great traditions. Talked a lot about liturgy in there. The second is we have an incredibly high value on congregational singing. Here's my thesis here. So um, this is like a multi-part multi thesis. 
we value congregational singing that is fully embodied and that disciples informs us. So we value congregational singing that is be fully embodied and see disciples informs us. So let me just break those down really quick. A, so it's predominantly, we are predominantly congregational um, in our, in our music, musical worship approach. And I say congregational predominantly on purpose because um, I do think there's a ministry of music that isn't 100% congregational. Duh, I'm a choir director. And I have you guys listen to choral anthems on Sundays. There's preludes and postludes. There's solos that are sung um, in offertory, right? Um, so it's predominantly. So there's two terms, two nerdy terms, Latin terms that I learned in um, Cambridge that I've really kind of grabbed onto to capture this. There are two Latin words that are related to each other. The first one is activa, A-C-T-I-V-A, and the second one is actuosa, um, A-C-T-U-O-S-A, activa and actuosa. And they have this partnership in corporate worship that's really important. Um, so I was emailing back in like 2011 with Ken and Stephen about this because I, I really love these terms. I was like, I just want to make sure I'm on the right, um, the right track with these Ken and Stephen. So do they mean what I think they meant? And so he wrote me back, and here's what he said. From a liturgical viewpoint, the term activa means literally active in the sense of physically or verbally doing something oneself. So it's the physical, verbal doing of something. The term actuosa means active in the sense of being engaged in what is going on. So um, one way you, you might say it is the activity of the body and the activity of the heart. Um, and Ken and Stephen wrote this, it's nice and beautiful, just in an email to me. Ideally, our worship is both activa of body and actuosa of heart. And, and then he wrote as a clarify, clarifier, because we were talking about choir, but this applies to music team as well. He wrote, when only the choir or our leaders sing, the congregation's worship is actuosa of heart, but not activa body. And then ideally, when they are singing, it's both, right? So um, before I get into the whole, I'm going to focus actually on activa and, the, and the, the fact that we do have a high level of value on the bodily participation of voice and body. But just to say, as a side note before I dive into that, that the worship of the heart, the actuosa, is valuable enough to me that, that I actually do look for the moments where you get to just do that. Because there's something that's received in the heart sometimes when part of it is just to listen and receive something. And that could be a whole separate talk, but I think that's also valuable to the life of worship. But I'm going to go into the combo, the idea that the heart and the mind are both engaged. All right, so um, we have um, this, this value that it's predominantly congregational. That means a few very important things. First of all, it means... Um, this, is, this was in Wesley's thing. I call it a manageable corpus, uh, meaning an amount of music that's in our regular diet that the people can learn and take in. 
if you introduce them seven new songs every week, congregational singing stops, right? Um, I have a huge value on clear musical leadership. One of my main trainings for my leader is, leaders is how they are clear in their musical worship. And this means a ton of stuff. What songs they choose. Um, we're going to talk about this more, but we have a value on melody over rhythm or harmony. Melody takes the, the primary role because that is the primary way that the people can engage and connect and sing. Um, congregationally achievable music. Um, we can talk more about that. Um, arrangements of the song matter. Arrangements that tell the people, we want you to be a part of this. How they lead the rehearsals. Um, um, how they lead the rehearsals of the band so that the band is ready to participate in leading the people. How they lead the band in the service. I always as a leader want to be responsive to what the people need to the point of we have a basic arrangement but my band doesn't know exactly what we're going to do because it does a few things. The band's like watching me because Steve might go chorus. Wait, I didn't know we were going to the chorus. I actually want them a little bit like wait, what's going to happen next because they do this the whole time. We actually stay together. I'm also responding to what then the people, what's happening in worship? Maybe we should sing that chorus again, you know? Um, uh, so that's, that's one of the things I'm training my worship leaders in. And then how, so how they lead the band in the service and how they lead the congregation in the service. Um, we talk about things as specific as how you breathe when you're coming in and when you breathe. When you say something to the congregation, what kind of eye contact you make with the congregation. All these things that tell them, I'm, I'm leading you, I'm inviting you in um, to participate in this. Um, and, then, uh, and then how to introduce new songs. How and when to introduce new songs. All this goes to that predominantly congregational value. Okay, but then, like I said, B, congregational singing that is B, fully embodied. So what does it mean to have fully embodied worship? Um, well, the human person, first of all, longs for beauty. So um, Allison, to your question about utilitarians, um, you can do something that's fully congregational that isn't very sort of heart um, um, imagination engaging. Someone can stand up there and lead people in simple, boring songs, and it can be fully congregational. So one of the things is we just strive for beauty and grandeur. Um, one of the main reasons I want choirs a part of it, it's why I like descants, it's why I like obligato beautiful instruments like cellos, harps, and trumpets. It's why I like creativity. Once you learn the parameters of how to bring people in, it's why it's fun to mix things up. It's why People love it when we do something creative with the introduction to the Gloria. Um, it's why style variants can be really um, engaging in worship. It's why the reharmonized last verse of a hymn can be really exciting. Um, preludes and postludes, beauty and grandeur matter too. Um, and engaging, that's some of the actuosa that's there is that, and it's some of that what it makes it fully embodied is beauty. Um, this applies to other areas of the arts. It's why at the vigil we don't just have someone stand up and read the story of creation. We have it acted out because 
the mind and the heart and the body are like, whoa, something's happening to me. It, it's embodying. And also, we worship with our bodies. I mean, of course, the Eucharistic self, we get up, we walk forward, we receive the body and the blood and all the other sacraments, fully embodied in our bodies. It's also the simplicity. This is the whole thing about um, considering the use of projection is just the freedom to use our bodies, to raise our hands, to open them up, to just be physically present. Some people dance, some people move. Sometimes kids form a somewhat scary line um, <laughs> running around the, the room. Uh, Holy Week, every service in Holy Week has this completely physically embodied moment in it. At, um, the, the waving of palm branches, the washing of feet, the praying at the cross, the just participation in the Easter Vigil, the walking of the Stations of the Cross, um, baptisms on Sunday, dancing, you know, um, fully embodied worship. Um, all within a context also of personal healing and transformation. So fully embodied in the individual human person. Um, the invitation to, to bring what's happening into your own life, to go and physically receive prayer and be anointed, um, fully embodied. Uh, the third one, C, um, and, it, and this therefore disciples and forms us. So obviously, words matter. I don't have to make that case for you. What we're singing matters. But also, the music itself can be a vehicle for both memorization of those words. If those words really matter, how they're set musically, mm -hmm. they can be a vehicle. They can also be a hindrance um, for the memorization of and the implanting of the truth of good words into our souls. Um, and I do believe it requires a certain type of music. So um, here's my last thing. I wrote a manifesto in 2014 on vocal ranges and melody. And um, this poor worship leader guy from another church wrote me and said, hey, what do you think about vocal range at your church? Like you go from like C, B to like D. And then he got this email, email in response. I apologize to him for doing that to him. But um, I think this is a good way to end as I talk about this whole idea of what shapes and forms us from a purely kind of musical perspective. So um, less about words and more about the music that sort of clothes and brings life to those words. So can we, um, we kind of crank through this? And this is going to give you a ton of my thoughts on melody and range and we'll just stop right there and we, do we usually up to 12 30 is that how this, this yeah, goes yeah and the rest of the time we can just dialogue okay sound good why don't we go around who was the last person to read a all right so we'll start with lydia and let's just do one par paragraph at a, at a time okay vocal ranges that enliven worship congregational singing is an essential and beautiful part of a worship service its style can vary greatly from church to church, but across cultures and musical preferences, it is an opportunity for God's people to unite in worshiping him, and an integral factor in the success of congregational singing, though some may not realize it, is the worship leader's choice of key and vocal range. So just a note, this is when we turn it into a blog post. Um, this was like the introduction. So we got turned into a blog post on Reza's website. So you didn't write that in the email. Yeah, yeah. He's like, yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah. Go ahead, sorry. 
Recently, a friend and fellow worship leader asked me to share my opinion about selecting keys and vocal ranges for congregational worship. What follows was my response to his request. It was my effort to put the philosophy of key and range that we practice here at Resurrection into words. My perspective comes from a few personal experiences. I'm a choral musician first, and I generally believe that people's ranges should be appropriately challenged and stretched. However, I also resonate with the difficulties that come when trying to encourage congregational singing. Lastly, I am a tenor and have generally pushed the envelope a little on the high range with my congregation. Just to be fair, yeah. just to be honest. Okay, keeping these things in mind, uh, here are my suggestions to worship leaders. First, picking a key is not just about range, but also about tessitura and approach to high notes. Um, so tessitura... Um, is for an instrument or a voice, the sort of the meat, the kind of place it most wants to live or sounds beautiful or works, if you will. Okay, of course, you do not want to choose a key that will be too high for the average singer to keep up with. But often this issue has more to do with the specific song selection and how it approaches the high notes than necessarily which high notes it requires people to hit. So I use examples that are probably getting dated, but. For example, Tim Hughes' song, At Your Name, in the key of G, sits on uh, C and D throughout most of the melody, which makes the tessitura high and tiring for the voice. So that, um, D is not a particularly high note for a congregation to hit now and again, but in this context, it is more of a challenge. On the other hand, From the Squalor of a Borrowed Stable by Getty Townsend can be sung quite nicely by a congregation in the key of D. So the difference between the first being like, Lord of all the earth, we shout your name. Da, 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 Yahweh, Yahweh, we love to shout your name, oh Lord. That's more challenging for a congregation, all those Ds and just sitting up there. Um, but nah, that's my D. And from the squalor of borrowed stable, it sounds like this. But the skies were filled with the praise of heaven. Da, da, da. You're singing the same note, but the approach mm. matters. That's, that's the point, how you use it. Um, there are lots of high Ds in this song, but they are approached from the beginning of the phrase and quickly run down. Mm. I find this type of an approach to that note makes it easier to sing high. When choosing a key, try to determine the one that elicits the most energy in singing from the congregation as a whole. First of all, there are some songs with such a small range that you have multiple key options. In this situation, I think many worship leaders make the mistake of picking the keys that sound the best in their own voice. A lot of women will choose a key that is too low, and men will differ depending on their vocal range. I've gone too high on this before. I think the better approach is to imagine a room of 100, 300, or 1,000 people singing the song together. What is the climactic moment of the song? Where does the melody really soar? What note would help really help those moments of the song blossom? Then, based on that, and assuming the whole song can be sung with that starting place, pick your key. Second, it is impossible to deny that sometimes specific songs just sound better in specific keys. For instance, our worship team discovered that Paul Balas's Open the Eyes of My Heart just rang out both vocally and instrumentally in the key of E in a way it didn't in the key of D. That might just be us, but I'm guessing that many have experiences, experienced something similar with
That's another nerd moment. He tried to prove, I won't go into details, but he tried to prove the sort of distinctive uh, characteristics and um, usability of every key by composing um, movements for every possible key. Because before that, people thought some keys were like not usable. It has to do with a bunch of other factors too. But all that to say, keys have personalities. It's a nerdy musical thing. <laughs> experience that? <laughs> I experience it all the time because of my vocal range, but sorry, go ahead. <laughs> uh, no one is challenged to conversation. But there are benefits that come from choosing a challenging vocal range. A song that is too high and the result is too loud to challenge in the congregation. Also, if your congregation doesn't sing along consistently as it is, the first step is probably not to raise the key. I do in the right So this poor guy asked about how high I make my congregation sing and he had to read like nine paragraphs to get to E. <laughs> He's probably like, E, thanks. <laughs> Sorry, go ahead. <laughs> uh, that would be in circumstances where my first and second points in the previous section were met when I felt like they were really vocal. Also, be sure to consider the size of the congregation before choosing challenging songs. In a large room full of people, I'm more willing to stretch the range of a congregation. In a small, intimate For instance, yeah, I gotta bring that key down. <laughs> Thank you. 
some people believe that a song is not worth spinning at all if it doesn't sound good with words and can't get any meaning from it. Some of the most poignant and powerful moments I've ever experienced in worship are when you sing part or all of a song without any instrumentation. A few worship experiences I have had are forever etched in my memory. The Panja Lingua. you don't succeed, well, you know the rest. I've messed up the key and range of songs so many times as a worship leader. My teams are very used to me adjusting the key of a song after we've experienced playing and singing it with our congregation. I also think that some songs work in multiple keys and that some don't. If that is the case, then our various leaders have the freedom to pick the key they prefer. But in the end, the main idea to take away from this is that finding the balance between comfortable and challenging keys is a process. It requires trial and error and experience with your congregation. The hope is that as you grow in this skill, you will find yourself freshly enabled to lead others into worship and into the presence of God. I don't think I wrote that last sentence. I think that was a blog addition to to make it make sense. <laughs> The, the Bethany before Bethany. This is old enough to be... Uh, great. So, um, those, are my two, those are my two things. I didn't leave us as much, nearly as much time as I had hoped to. But I would love, I'd love to just take the time we have left. You can ask questions about any and all of what we talked about today. Follow-up questions. Or if there's areas that you were really hoping I'd talk about that I didn't, you have a question... So I would say I've been a res since 2000, and I would say when I was first here, um, repetition might might be one of the main the main things. Um, we used to most worship songs would be like would be sung four times in a year max. Uh, many of them way less. Than um, we had a really large selection. We were very connected to the, the theme of the day and the liturgy um, to the point that kind of keeping that connection probably outweighed familiarity. Um, now, if you went to Res then for three years or something, you'd be like, oh, now this song's coming around. I love this song. Um, but that's really hard to bring someone new into. So um, at some point, I just really started to move into the, in the direction of repetition a smaller body of songs some stylistic changes to um, things that are fun um, that work in worship that I felt like imitationally sometimes are a little harder to engage at first I probably do less of those styles than I used to um, those probably be the, the main thoughts um, simplicity being a, a driver too 
how many complicated things I ask the congregation to do on a morning. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's uh there is a there is a battle that the worship leader does between what the human voice can do, what our culture thinks it can do, and what kind of songs are being written. Um and you're constantly putting all those factors together. Um there is this awesome song by Glenn Packham who I really love. He's a good friend. He's ACNA guy, I think. But, um, and he's friends with Paul Balash. You know, you were the one who knows Glenn. Um, um, but he, uh, was he ordained in the ACNA? Yeah. He, um, what's it? It's Christ Has Died, Christ Has Risen. It's this awesome song. It is the most insane range I've ever heard. It goes down to a low G sharp and up to, um, I think, an E. So whatever key I put it in, I'm just kind of like, and I love the song, and, and I can kind of breathe out that low <laughs> sort of in the morning, and, and I can sing all the high stuff, but I just don't use it as much as I love it, because that's an example of like, what, how am I supposed to do this with my congregation? But there are moments, and I do this a lot, and I, I do this more than a lot of worship leaders, where I'm like, I know you don't think your voice can do this, but it is built to be able to do this, and I'm going to ask you to do it. And if you choose not to, and you choose to go down, you know what I mean? Yeah. I, I do make choices like that, or I push it high, um, because our culture probably struggles most with with high range, yeah. um, except for a certain style of kind of male rock and roll singing. Yeah. There's this kind of like homogenizing of the male and female voice to the middle. So I'm always kind of pushing us back a bit in the direction of, of what we can do because it elicits, it elicits things in worship, um, especially in a large body of worship of a thousand people where you're, you're one part of it. Um, but I also then sometimes I'm like, but I, I don't want to do it so much that I'm telling certain people, like, you're not up to the challenge or you can't do this. So it's this massive kind of wrestling match that goes on. Behind the scenes. Is there any ways that you feel called to respond as a worship leader to how much anxiety people have around their voice? Like if they feel like they're not a good singer, is there something they're not allowed to do? Mm. Oh, that's really good. Uh, well, first of all, everyone's meant to sing. I just think that's that's true. I think it's how the Lord made us. I have a tone-deaf older sister who loves the Lord with all her heart and sings her guts out next to me when we're together and I love it. You know what I mean? Like everyone's just meant to sing. Um, and, and just the physical sensation of participating regardless of what it sounds like I think is so important. Um, and then I do feel called to kind of like the, the church, to challenge the church to stretch itself in its singing. 
And I think we feel that at Res. John did that before me. Um, when you have that many people gathered and we do it together and we realize we're a part of something together, um, something happens. And when you're always thinking about every individual voice and, and making sure everyone's comfortable, you will kind of stunt what's possible for us as a whole. But when I'm with five people leading worship, like I said, that framework changes, you know? So you gotta read your, your moment too in that. It's a great, great question. I, go ahead. Yeah, um, I've had an awesome dynamic with that. Stuart and I just kind of have always kind of been in sync and Stuart um, didn't study music, but you can see from the fact that he had all his kids learn music, um, that he has a high value of it and he has a massively high intuition around it. It's kind of crazy for what he doesn't know that he intuits, even like coming to Jana's classical piano recitals, I'm like, how did you, like, without studying music, how did you just even intuit that was what was happening? So we just always had a sync up and a worship sync up, and it's been a joy. So the partnership just on the base level is so important that um, I, as a worship leader, could never have gone into an environment where I was working under a, a rector celebrant who didn't get it. And then vice versa, I think just the hire itself as a starting point for the worship leader is so important. Um, and and the, the shared value. So that's a, that's a starting point. Um, and then, yeah, it would be a fun coffee to talk about, like, what are the, what are the sub points of what, what does the rector need to learn and grow in understanding? And what does the, what does the worship leader need to grow and learn in understanding and as well um, and there's variances I worked here for years with different celebrants and it got to the point where they were pretty new to celebrating and I had 12 years of worship leading experience so if it wasn't Stuart or Kevin over there in one season it was kind of like you know so like learning even the partnership of where you're at like if you have a highly trusted worship leader to be like most of the time at this point at res most of the dynamics are like back at you yes i'm in charge and i give the freedom back to you to make the call you know what i mean so it's even figuring out the dynamic itself um, and where you're at and then all of a sudden you bring on a new worship leader and then i think it's important to kind of manage and control it a little more like um for the first several years stewart approved every single one of my lineups and gave feedback um and gave me a lot of pointers and then, then it got to the point where it's like, he, he's like, if I, now if I think there was something I want to change about your lineup, I'll just tell you after, you know, for the next time, because it's a trust build. And, and that plays out into a thousand different ways as well. But that relationship is key. It's huge in a church plant. Yeah.
really good. Um, so being a part of a large church where you say no to people is a thing for sure. Um, and I would not, I would not argue that we have always or even now, and my leadership has done that perfectly, so I would start there. Um, I do think it's important to think about some of the values on the other side. Um, first of all, let's kind of raise up the value of anyone standing in front of the church and leading them in worship. That's a spiritual leadership role. Mm -hmm. So first let's just raise up that there should be a value and a, and a, and a process just from the standpoint of, do we want anyone leading our church and celebrating and preaching? Do we want to hire anyone as the worship leader? No, no, no. standard and participation changes as you go to different areas, but that, the fact that it's a value and it's a leadership role, I think is an important starting point. Um, uh, people, the body responds and, and, and what the church is to them is in part by how they're led on a Sunday. So the value of who you put up there matters very specifically and significantly in that way. Um, I also think, and this is, this is a challenge at every size of a church, you get to this point where it's like there was this standard of excellence or there's got to be a better term of like, or ability. And then all of a sudden you get large and now you have 60 of those people. Um, and then it's like, bah, how do you manage 60 of those people who are that excellent and that qualified? Um, and I've hit different points where you have to change how you do things procedurally um, simply because we've grown to the point for how we did it. Now it's too large of a capacity and your team itself needs a dynamic. Like you can't show up on the team every week and be like, hey, I'm Bill, hey, I'm Judy. We've never met before, you know. Can't, can't be every member of your team meeting every, you know what I mean? So your dynamic has to change because you have to have a sense of team and community and and knowing each other as well. Um, so that's like a brief answer. I glanced over like what the, I didn't even talk about what the musical standards are or whatever. Um, high value on raising up new young leaders is one. Um, high value on some level of ability and some level of willingness on the music team to, to dive into both kind of directions of sort of I was trained by ear and folk and um, kind of that world, and I was trained by um, reading music and classical on the other. Um, one of my easy tests is, do you want to participate in both? And do I see in your kind of, your kind of participation a willingness and a desire to grow in the area that you're not as strong in? Um, that is, that's, that's certainly one of my my course. And I've always got people out here at Res who should be doing it and I can't find enough opportunities for it. Mm -hmm. yeah, um, for sure. 